eight weeks at number one uh, on the podcast charts uh, because of the actions of you sound cunts uh, liking subscribing leaving reviews uh, eight weeks uh, on the podcast charts uh, because of you sound cunts uh, that was eight weeks at number one in the podcast charts because of the actions of you sound cunts subscribing and leaving reviews by Marky e. Smith of the band The Fall. Marky e. Smith, who is deceased, is listening to this podcast in purgatory. And he's a big fan of the podcast, and I'm a big fan of The Fall. I like Marky e. Smith's music, it was great. And he submitted that song, and I recorded it. He submitted the lyrics. And he's above in purgatory listening. And he's in purgatory because of some sins that he committed as a child, as a six-year-old child. And uh, he didn't go to confession for those particular sins. The sin was in 1964 in Prestwich near Manchester. Six-year-old Marky Smith. Um, He boarded a, a, a steam train. And as the train left for its journey, he stuck his head out the window and spat in the station master's face. And for that sin, and for the failure to confess that sin to a priest, his soul was blackened and did not have the forgiveness of God and Jesus Christ, who themselves are both their own father and son at the same time, in a kind of quantum superposition of paternity. And as a result, lead singer of the post-punk band The Fall, Mark E. Smith, is posthumously living his life in purgatory for 70 years until he will eventually be allowed into the gates of heaven in accordance with uh, Catholic doctrine and catechism. Of course, that's not true because Mark E. Smith isn't dead. But I thought he was dead when I decided upon that intro. So, apologies to you, Mark E. Smith. You're not dead. Um, but, I don't know. I just thought the idea of you sending me a song from Purgatory because of a sin you committed when you were six would be a good opener for a podcast. So I made light of your mortality. And do you know what? You deserve better than that. Listen to The Fall. Great band. Uh, Start off with the song Totally Wired by The Fall. Very good. Hugely influential. James Murphy from LCD Sound System would not be making music without The Fall. He completely appropriated Marky Smith's vocal stylings. Mainly, the main thing about Marky Smith is that he he adds um, an an extra vowel and to the end of some of his words like a racist depiction of an Italian in a Dalmio ad today's podcast is sponsored by Dalmio and Gino Ogino Ginelli who are making a comeback with their brand of gelato I'm Marky e. Smith uh, running around the place uh, singing songs uh, 
He sings like that. And James Murphy does that too. But Marky Smith did it first, you can't. I ended last week's podcast with a compassionate plea for just, you know, I'm always trying to look out for your uh, for your mental well-being. Um, as you know, I'm my... I look after my mental health on a daily basis, so I'm going to try and include ye in that process with me, and then hopefully ye can kind of take it on board too. But I, I urged you last week at the end of the podcast to not allow the winter weather to lower your mood, to understand and recognise that even though the days are shorter and it's bleak and it's dark and it's cold and the trees don't have any leaves and the birds are looking for worms. You know, it's a bleak. December is, mid-December is bleak. To not allow that to, that external world to infiltrate infiltrate your internal world, that it doesn't have to, and that you can search and find beauty and purpose in that winter. Because a lot of people do get themselves down because of the weather or because of the cold or whatever. And as CBT says, human suffering is not caused by what happens to us. It's caused by the attitude that we have towards what happens. So if you can change that attitude, you don't have to necessarily have any unnecessary unhappiness around it. It is, you know, it's bleak enough this time of year. It's no surprise that Christmas happens around this time either, right? The one thing that December has gone for it is Christmas. We bring out the sparkly lights, the happy music. You get together with your family. You eat loads of class food. And assuming that you have a good relationship with your family or that you're not lonely, it is, it's generally a very good time of year for most people. Some people, Christmas is hell, depending on what the situation is for them. But even Christmas, you know, this has been going on for years lads I mean humans have known that the short days will bring you down going back years and years and years Christmas fall Christ's birth in inverted commas happening on the 25th of December is no fucking coincidence the shortest day of the year is the 21st of December the winter solstice and this has been celebrated for as long back as humans have been recording history, you know, because we're aware the days are getting short, it's depressing, man the fuck, can we have some type of crack, please? Some type of crack? The other thing too is like, food isn't growing at that time of year. So there's lots of traditions around the world that happen around the solstice that Christmas is based upon. There's one called Yalda Night, and this is celebrated in Iran uh, on the winter solstice and they have a feast and the family and the whole crack not too far off Christmas but this one that traces its roots to Zoroastrianism which is one of the oldest religions that I can possibly think of it comes from the Iranian region which we would know as, as Persia and Babylon which is where Iraq is now. And these were the oldest civilizations. The When humans started to live in cities, 
in communities larger than 150, we started to develop monotheistic religion, religion where you believe in one God, and Zoroastrianism was the first one. Um, they ascribed to the teachings of the Iranian prophet Zoroaster. The kind of the features of Zoroastrianism, right? Uh, Messianism, heaven and hell, free will. They influenced Judaism, Gnosticism, Christianity, Islam. They all come from Zoroastrianism. And they were doing Christmas 4,000 years ago. Going back another few thousand years in Ireland. The people in Ireland, I won't call them Celtic, but the... The Neolithic Irish people, they were up in Newgrange with their winter solstice, having festivals. In Europe, there was a pagan festival called Yule, which was celebrated by the Germanic people. And it's a, it's a white, they used to hunt, they'd have a hunt, because obviously, you know, it's, it's December, so nothing's growing, so they would go out and kill a deer. It was for the god Odin. And the pagan Anglo-Saxon, uh, Modernist, can't pronounce his name. But Yule, that name will be familiar to you because, you know, Yuletide, Yule Log. This is um, Christianity, when Christianity moved in to that European region. It, it had to kind of borrow from some of the pagan traditions so that it could properly Christianize the people. So... They brought elements of Yule into Christmas as such. And that's why, we, you know, you can go to Aldi today and buy a fucking Yule log. It's because you're supposed to be out hunting a wild boar and sacrificing it to Odin. So, that's what Christmas is. It's, it's to take it back to Carl Jung from a few podcasts ago, it's the human collective unconscious looking after its own mental health in a time when the days are short. And we're more susceptible to uh, feeling a bit blue and feeling a bit down. But you have control over that. You can, you know, you can take a note of it. And what I like to do, I find the beauty in the in the decay. I find the beauty in the, in the freezing cold. Um, Jesus, get up, get up early in the morning when it's freezing and there's no clouds. And look at the ice and watch the sun sparkle that ice like lights. That's very, very beautiful, you know. So you can you can find personal meaning in something that we are kind of conditioned to believe is, is a darkness. Some people have seasonal adjustment disorder too, where they're not getting enough vitamin D from the sun because the sun isn't out as, as much as it would be in the summer. And this uh, vitamin D, I think, affects the production of serotonin in the brain. And some people chemically can get quite depressed because of the winter but you can buy vitamin D lights to sort that one out. So anyway, last week, uh, while I was out embracing and enjoying the winter, I went back to the river in search of the otter that I spoke about a couple of podcasts ago, in search of Yorty Ahern, the otter. I was shocked to find that his couch, his otter's couch, was actually flooded, that the Classy River had flooded a bit because of something that was happening upstream and I felt like shit for a second and I was like oh fuck Yorkley Ahern's couch is gone but then I realised he's an author and 
He didn't give a fuck about floods. Probably getting on grand. But I went down there with a lovely hot flask of a mulled alcohol drink with a Christmas twist. And I promised on Twitter that I'd give you the recipe to this particular drink and I'm going to do that. I love cooking. I don't speak about it much, but I fucking adore cooking. Yeah, I, I, out of all the art forms, I believe cooking to be the most tragic. And I tell you why. When you cook, no matter how much care and love you put into the dish and how much time you put into it, if you cook it, you will never taste it properly because your nose has been exposed to the smells while you cook it. So only other people can taste your cooking. And there's a lovely tragedy in that. You can never... It's like being able to make music and never being able to hear it or being able to to write a, a book and never being able to read it. That's what cooking is, as the art forms go. And I, I like the comic tragedy of that, and that's why I like cooking. Um, it's why when you were a kid, when you went over to your friend's house, their ma's dinners always tasted better. Because you're not exposed to the smells. When your own ma was cooking, her dinner was probably lovely, but you're exposed to the smells and the aromas of that cooking. And it gets in there, and it's like a... It's like a spoiler. Do you know? You need a, Someone should invent a spoiler warning for food. Some pill that you take. You cook your own food and then you can taste it authentically. So I love cooking and I love fucking around with recipes. I went down to the river with a hot flask of this mulled drink. I'm not going to call it mulled wine because it's my own little invention. Here's my issue with mulled wine. It's gorgeous, right? It's... I love mulled wine especially around Christmas because it's warm and cinnamony and it has all those Christmas flavours all the alcohol's gone when you're drinking an alcoholic drink you want that lovely little chemical warmth that little kick that you get from the from the drink that's beautiful but you don't get that from mulled wine because you boil it and alcohol burns off at 75 degrees so the alcohol's gone so here's my drink which I'm going to call a yurtia hern I'm naming it after this author. Give it a go at home if you like. Now the thing with this drink, like I said, it's not mulled wine. It is a mulled drink that you can add your alcohol to afterwards and it allows a great degree of creativity in what alcohol you do add. So what I do is I buy a cloudy apple juice. Do you know that stuff? The cloudy stuff. Buy as much of that as you want. I don't know, a litre, two litres. Fuck it into a pan get it on the boil right you can throw in a bit of sugar if you want up to you you can be creative with this recipe then make a bouquet garni which is a a French it's a French thing it's where you get herbs and spices and put them in a bit of muslin cloth like like, kind of like a kind of like a lumpy tea bag if you don't have muslin like fuck muslin do you know what I mean you have to go into you have to go into town to buy that Get a clean J-cloth. That's what I use. A clean J-cloth out of the packet, right? And into this, scrape a bit of the zest off a lemon and a lime or an orange, any citrus, whatever you want. Throw into that a few slices of ginger, a couple of cinnamon sticks, a few cloves, a couple of cardamom pods, and then if you can go to an Asian shop, buy some star anise, right? And put all these things whole into the middle of this J-cloth 
wrap it up tightly with an elastic band or twine or whatever. Fuck that into the boiling apple juice, okay? Leave it boil away for a while. The longer you do it, the better. Bring it down to a low slimmer. You can leave it there for the day. Make your house smell lovely, better than a Yankee candle. Into that, then, if you want to darken it, you can throw in a bit of fucking molasses or prune juice or brown sugar, whatever you want. Throw in a bit of Ribena. This is your recipe, and I believe that Yorty Ahern the Otter, by his very playful nature, when I observed him by the river, would want you to be creative with this, this recipe. So anyway, you've got this made. It's essentially hot apple juice with a J-cloth bouquet garni of assorted spices. This is where the fun happens. You pour this non-alcoholic drink into your glass. Then you top it up with whatever you want. If you want mulled wine, top it up with some wine. Gorgeous. You've got all the alcohol in there and you've got those beautiful cinnamon and cardamom flavours coming through. If you want to fuck some dark rum in there instead, go ahead, go nuts. Uh, Whiskey can work lovely. Jack Daniels in particular because it has those vanilla notes. You can fuck vanilla into the bouquet garni as well, the J-clap bouquet garni. So give that a go. Give it a lash. Alright, I hope that... uh, And that's known as the Yorty Ahern. And take that down to a river. And drink that. And search for an author. And I I think... uh, maybe Maybe I'm projecting my own love of... My own love of a nice drink onto an author. But... Fuck it, I'd say he'd be alright with that. He'd be quite happy knowing that there's a drink named after him with his 21 kilometres of territory on the Plassey River. Something uh, people do ask me every so often because I've just done a, a soliloquy there about love of an alcoholic drink and some people say, Blind boy, how can you, how can you promote healthy mental health or... or you know, how can you promote that? But at the same time, you seem to eschew uh, love of, of substances. And I th- quite easily. Here's my thing with, with alcohol or with anything, whatever your poison is. I don't believe it's the... Now, obviously not talking about fucking hard drugs, but I don't know, drink or a joint or a fag... It's, it's not the substance that's the issue. It's your own personal relationship with the substance that is the issue. And for me, like I said, I love it. I love the odd cocktail. I love a bit of that mulled yorty ahern. And I, I, I experience the drink in a very here and now fashion. I don't drink excessively. I enjoy it because... Alcohol can be an incredibly complex and beautiful substance to actually drink. I enjoy it. Don't necessarily enjoy getting shit-faced drunk. That's a different story. But my relationship with alcohol, I believe, is quite healthy. And the trick is, whatever the substance is, to have an emotional awareness around why it is you are using it, okay? If you're having a tough day, and after that tough day, you're like, fuck, I'd love a whiskey. That's troublesome. Okay, that's that's where you need to look into yourself and go, what's going on for me here today? If you search, if you use a substance as an external solution to an internal problem, 
then what that does is it's you're numbing the emotions around that issue and that is not mentally healthy at all so what I do is if I ever do get a pang for even my vape that has nicotine in it if I get a pang for that in a stressful situation I say to myself hold on a minute now and I ask myself using emotional intelligence and intrapersonal intelligence what's going on for me and I try and resolve and understand some of the emotions and when I do that when I do that in in a, a mindful here and now fashion I no longer want the substance that I thought I wanted so for me I use alcohol or whatever very much as a reward system at the end of the week if I want to have a warm glass of Yorty Ahern, it's 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 because I, I aesthetically I want the aesthetic pleasure. It's not to relieve stress, it's not to deal with anger. It's aesthetics. I view it as an art form. And if I ever do feel a pang where I'm using any substance to mask some type of internal disquiet, then I knock it on the head. I use emotional intelligence. I ask myself what's going on. So that is how I am morally comfortable with speaking about alcohol or whatever in the same breath that I would speak about mental health. And assess your own relationship with a substance. That's what I would say. I've got buddies. They have an issue with drink. And the issue isn't that they drink excessively. And the issue isn't that they're addicted to drink. They could fucking drink once a month and not even think about it. But when they do drink, it changes their personality for the worse. And that's a big red flag that everyone should be aware of. If, when you have a few pints, you find yourself getting depressed, we'll say. If if you find yourself... If the sad thoughts that you have are amplified when you drink then that's a red flag you probably shouldn't drink if it makes you angry or aggressive if it makes you engage in risky behaviours if you wake up the next morning with a sense of fear over having done something that you would consider to be quite unacceptable that you wouldn't normally do in a stage of state of sobriety then that is grounds for you to assess your relationship with that substance and whether you should continue using that substance. That's what I say. For me, drink just makes me a little bit silly. If I go out and have a bunch of pints with the lads, I just get silly. I get really silly and excited and I don't insult anybody or start any scraps. Usually what happens is I, I get excessively giddy and emotional around music. That's what happens to me when I have a few pints. I will get just far, far too excited about a song and then I will share too many songs on Twitter. That That's the extent of me when I'm drunk. I'll get ferociously giddy about an obscure Frank Zappa extended jazz piece and then add that song in my state of inebriation to the Rubber Bandits uh, Spotify playlist and then wake up the next day and delete it because other people don't need to hear a very difficult 12 minute Frank Zappa jazz solo so that's my fear 
and I'm okay with that, you know. Also, what I might do is, if I'm in the pub, I can disappear into a corner and put on my headphones and listen to music. That's a bit antisocial. Not too thrilled with that behaviour. But it's better than glassing someone. But my buddies who are starting fights... You know, the rest of us have to get involved then because our drunk friend is starting fights. They have to sit down and have a think about whether drink is the one for them. Maybe they want to chill out, maybe they should chill out with a joint instead if they are, or live with no substances whatsoever. That's my attitude on it. I'm comfortable with that attitude. But again, on the subject of joints, if, uh, if smoking cannabis makes you really paranoid or makes you hear voices or just results in general unpleasantness if you find that it's like a pick and mix you know when you, when you don't know if I smoke this tonight I might pull a whitey get real paranoid or I might have a good time have a think about whether hash is for you because I spoke about this a couple of podcasts back the shit that you're smoking in Ireland is not safe for the human brain it does not have a sufficiently high level of CBD which protects the brain so have a think about that um, if smoking is a pick and mix for you you might be triggering some shit in yourself that you could do without and if you have to give up all substances have a crack at meditation meditation is uh, for a lot of people there's your brain's drugs nothing better than that you know all the endorphins and all that shit release that through meditation and if meditation doesn't work bit of running running is class I jog um, 7 kilometers 4 times a week I still have dad bod because I enjoy cooking but I run I don't run to lose weight or to stay slim I run because it feels fucking amazing for me now A lot of people hear that and they go, fuck off, you're a liar. Because running for the first month is awful. It's Your body is just like, fuck you, will you stop? It's torture. But then once you get good at it after about a month and it stops becoming intensely difficult and you stop getting cramps, get a little bit fit, fuck me. The endorphins that your brain releases, it's so pleasurable. You know, and it's great for stress relief and general mental health. Now, I don't mean to sound facetious there. One of the most insulting uh, tropes of modern mental health speak is to say to somebody, go out and have a run. If you're in the throes of depression and anxiety, one of the hardest things in the world can simply be to leave the, the door of your house. So I am not saying to somebody who's suffering from depression and anxiety, go out and have a run. No. All I'm saying is that it's it's something to consider, you know, and I understand if the idea of even making yourself a cup of tea is impossible or leaving bed, I get you and I'm not being facetious, all right? If you're doing all right, give, have a crack at running, give it a lash, put up with the, the pain for a while, guarantee you after a month you'll be like, where the fuck has this been all my life? I feel sorry for the people who have just joined the podcast today. I've just done 30 minutes of some very, very bizarre shit with no unifying theme whatsoever. 
Um, if you have been listening to the podcast for all eight episodes, I have a feeling you're with me. But if you just joined today, go back and listen to a few more because this is fairly free form today. That's the mood I'm in. But in an attempt to give the illusion of some type of structure and to unify the themes so far, which have been Marky Smith, Zoroastrianism, drink and an author, I would like to play for you some beautiful sage words about the love of alcohol from the Irish playwright John B. Keane. No man was ever born into this world with such a passionate love of liquor as myself. I, I, it isn't just that I love liquor for the taste of it, I love the plop of whiskey into a glass. I love it. I love to listen to it. I love to see the cream on a pint. I love the first powerful, violent impact of a glass of whiskey when I throw it back in me and when it hits the mark below. I chase it then with a pint and that's even more beautiful still. Drink in moderation is one of the most ridiculous statements ever made. You must drink a little more than moderation. St. Paul in his wisdom said we should take a little wine for our stomach's sake and for our frequent infirmities. My, my problem, I think, is this, is that I was born with a liking for it, as I say. I have a woman who has never too helped me over drink. Well, a few times, <clears throat> John said, well, I'm going to give up drink. And we said, all right. And after three days, we said, for God's sake, go away and take a drink. He was walking up and down, banging doors up and down the street, bars of chocolate. So we said, you drink it. There it is now. Take it and drink it. That's the way we feel about him. We think he, he has to have a drink. He needs it and it keeps him happy and relaxed. And um, <clears throat> we like him to take a drink. And I like him to take a drink because of that. Pe- people will get what impressions they like, you know. And uh, people, look, people look at me from an attitude from their own point of view, from their own, from their own interpretation of life itself. They view me through the very often distorted lenses of this, um, of this impression, you know. They look through, they look through a glass, and while the glass and the lens might be the right strength, uh, the distortion lies in the brain behind the lens. And that is what they see. What an absolute genius of a man. I mean, even listening to that little uh, that little piece is, is a pleasure to hear because what you hear is an artist in flow. He's speaking off the top of his head about drink and about how other people perceive him as a drinker. But the poet, the poet's mind comes through. He, in the moment, realises the the connection between the lens that the people are using, the, the distorted lens that people are using to look at him and then visually changes that distorted lens into the lens at the bottom of a pint glass as you drink it. That's a genius in action right there. He was creating a little scene, a little play in his head just in, in normal conversation in his fucking kitchen. Yort. Fair play to that man. I don't necessarily agree with all of his opinions on drink. 
I do believe you can enjoy drink in moderation. Um, but sure, look, he's old school, and who the fuck am I to say anything wrong against John B. Keane, the legend? But what took me to this conversation? We're going to head back to the river now, the Plassey River. As I stood there with my with my flask of mulled alcoholic drink, searching for the otter, Yorty Ahern, as his couch was destroyed by a flood. And I watched the river and I was thinking about the, the importance of that river in Limerick and everything that's gone by in history. I mean, that spot is where the Vikings took their longboats down. You know, before Limerick was a city, and when they, when they founded the city of Limerick, the Vikings took their longboats down that river. And just upriver from that, there's a castle called Castle Try, And there's a huge big hole in the side of it. And a local historian told me that that hole was put there by Oliver Cromwell himself. Because it used to be a garrison and he fired a cannon through it. But it got me thinking about a news story that I saw during the week. About the US Navy having a new, a new stealth destroyer. It's like, um, it's like a submarine with stealth technology. But when they tried to launch it, it didn't work. It was a big load of bollocks. Something to do with the technology fucking up. The US military is weird. It's creepy. And fucking weird because... They make a lot of shit they don't need. The US economy is propped up by the creation of military hardware there's towns in the rust belt of america and the economies of these towns and these cities depends upon making tanks and making armored vehicles but the issue is is that we're no longer in the cold war there used to be two superpowers the us and the ussr russia this led to an arms race where it was logical that the US would need lots, you know, a massive military budget and it would need to be continually building and building and building all these armoured vehicles. But this situation doesn't exist anymore. The US is still involved in conflicts all around the world, but now they're fighting these conflicts, not with troops on the ground, not with tanks on the ground, but with drones, which are quite inexpensive and efficient. So how can the US continue to justify building all of these tanks that they are still building? Well, like I said, it's to prop up the economy. If you stop building tanks, there's a lot of towns in America that are going to have great unemployment. So where do the tanks go? Where do the armoured carriers go? Where do the weapons go? Well, they often have a nice little deal going with somebody like the Saudis or the Qataris, where the Saudis have got like a load of F-16 planes and nobody in the Saudi Air Force can fly them. The US do a little deal. Hey Saudis, uh, why not buy a ton of planes off us please? This will prop up the economy for a year. And the Saudis just buy them. But what else is happening? Is these armoured tanks and vehicles are responsible for the increasing militarization of the police forces of America. That when we look on television and we see 
whatever riot or protest is happening in America and you go, fuck me, the police are in tanks, what's going on? A lot of people think, shit, you know, they're trying to do this police state shit. They're trying to take over, they're trying to turn the police into the military. Well, it's not as sinister as that, it's not as deliberate as that, it's economic necessity. And here's why. You can trace the militarization of the American police back to Ronald Reagan's war on drugs in the 80s um, when he literally declared a war on drugs and this is when SWAT teams became a thing they'd have these special unit of police special wep- weapons and tactics unit who would have armoured police uh, personnel carriers little tanks and they'd kick down the doors of drug dealers and raid drug dens but then this kept growing and growing especially after the war on terror With the disappearance of the Cold War and the fact that the US had no serious military competitor, they needed, obviously, the US government needed to keep producing these military weapons to prop up the economy. So they brought in laws and regulations. There was a provision brought in into the defence budget about 15 years ago that authorised the Pentagon to transfer surplus military gear to police forces and local law enforcement they're using weapons that weapons that are found on the battlefields of the Middle East are ending up into the hands of law enforcement. If you're a police chief and someone's offering you a lot of tanks and guns, you're going to go, yeah, go on, why not? New ties. But one of the problems of this is that it's having um, a kind of a psychological effect on the culture of how police work is being done in the U.S., There was a report in the New York Times that says police departments have received tens of thousands of machine guns, nearly 200,000 ammunition magazines, thousands of pieces of camouflage and night vision equipment in the Obama era. But one troubling thing is that if you tog out the police to look like soldiers, they start to act like soldiers. There's been 80,000 military-style police raids in in recent years. Right, this, th- These figures are growing each and every year. The police, because they're equipping themselves like the military, are now starting to act like the military. But because of human error, it is increasing the amount of harm and death on innocent people simply because of the equipment. Um, human error is always going to be an issue, but if you give a US cop a- an instrument of brutal murder which is what a machine gun is compared to a revolver that they would have had in the 70s. The amount of innocent people that are dying is increasing. Flashbang grenades. They've killed a couple of people and they're not even supposed to kill people, but they do because it's a grenade. It's propping up the very, very dodgy private contractor sector. The companies like Blackhawk and Lockheed Martin who are making a lot of these very advanced military equipment. You've got regular police departments with grants from Homeland Security and these private contractors are coming straight to them, sending them all these weapons. And the lads are going, brilliant, I've got all this money, I've got to spend it. Because you know that's the situation with a budget. If you give somebody a budget, they want to spend all of it. Because if they spend half of it, then they only get half next year. Another huge participant in this increasing militarization is the border security and this is where you start to wonder you start to credit Trump 
with a bit of shrewdness and intelligence and you wonder if the border patrols are now availing of this increased military equipment which by itself is propping up we'll say the, the US economy and industry by making this equipment then is Trump's Mexican wall and his fear around borders merely another excuse for increased militarization so that the Rust Belt towns don't all go unemployed? Are the tanks and guns in the next 10 years going to go to the border police? Is that Trump's plan? Is he that smart? I don't know. But worst of all, and it's something that we're all kind of seeing in the, in the news of the, over the past two years, three years, is it's mostly affecting the communities of colour in America. You, you already have an intense historical distrust against the police in these poorer areas where uh, blacks and Latinos are living in the US. This is now amplified to extreme tension because the local cop no longer looks like your friendly local cop. He looks like a soldier. So that by itself, combined with historical distrust, creates a serious sense of tension, which results in more innocent deaths at the hands of police who have M16s. So it's all pretty toxic. But at the core of it, like I said, is the fragility of the US economy in the places around the Rust Belt. That, re- that depend upon building military equipment for their jobs and for the steel industry. And it's a bit fucked up, isn't it? Yanks. But where's my hot take, lads? How can I, how can I take this back to Limerick? How can I, in this huge global issue take this back to Limerick and take it back to the the Plassey River and that author well let me have a go the first ever submarine that was formally commissioned by the US Navy was known as the Holland One named after its inventor John Philip Holland in fact even today a lot of US submarines are known as Holland Class Named after this man, John Philip Holland. But who was John Philip Holland? He was born in Liscanor in County Clare and lived for some time in Kilkee, born in 1841. And John Philip Holland was a maths teacher in CBS Sexton Street, Christian Brothers Secondary School in Limerick. In 1871, because times were tough in Ireland and John Philip Holland was a, quite a talented mathematician and engineer he fucked off to America like so many other Limerick people did and he went over to New Jersey but when he was a teacher he was in Cork he was reading about a, a battle in the American Civil War between the Ironclads Monitor and the Merrimack and he realised that the best way to attack these type of ships would have been an attack from underneath the waterline. So he drew a design, this really shit design, of kind of a, a submarine-type warship. And people thought he was nuts. They thought he was fucking mad. And it was rejected. 
turned away from any type of funding. So they went over to New Jersey as an Irishman. He ended up uh, coming across a group of lads known as the Fenians. The Fenians were kind of exiled Irish people living in, in living in America, uh, an early incarnation of the IRA. And the Fenians' goal was always to kind of raise an army in the U.S. or raise funds and go back and get go back to Ireland and beat the British. Fenians were mad cunts. They once invaded Canada. You can look that one up. That's for another podcast. So, Patterson found that no one was taking his submarine idea seriously, except for the Fenians. So, he went to them and said, look, I've got this idea here for this kind of, this underwater warship. And the Fenians said, alright, go on, come back to us with a better design. So he did. And this became known as the Fenian Ram. And the Fenian Ram is essentially the world's first submarine. And it was made for the Fenians by John Philip Holland so that they could sink British ships. It was about the size of a bread van and it had one gun in it. And the plan was you'd go underneath a British ship and shoot the bottom of the ship and the ship would sink. Um, But of course, it was kind of the project from the start was full of holes, excludes the pun. There was a dispute over payment. Holland wanted payment for this ram and the Fenians were not ready to give him payment. They were like, here, hold on a second, you're doing this for Ireland. So Holland hung on to the Fenian ram, the submarine. So they went and stole it and they took it to Connecticut with the stolen submarine. They took it to a lake but then when they got there they realised that none of them had a clue how to operate it and John Philip Holland was refusing to show them. So they kind of abandoned it and put it into a shed and it ended up touring the world as this weird exhibition in museums and it was used in uh, Madison Square Garden it was displayed in 1916 as a way to raise funds for victims of the 1916 Rising but news of Holland's submarine travelled faster on the US until he was eventually approached by the US Navy and around 1897 he designed a successful submarine model for them and this became known in 1900 as the USS Holland the first ever submarine by the US Army and like I said to this day you still have the Holland class submarine and the Royal Navy the British Royal Navy have the Holland class submarine all because of a humble maths teacher in CBS in Limerick I'm always doing that I'm always finding large global stories and trying to bring it back to Limerick. Someone someone on Twitter last week described it as six degrees of desperation. That Limerick has this. And I'd agree with you. That is six degrees of desperation right there. I have set up a Patreon page um, for the listeners of this podcast. Because I want to I want to grow the podcast into something more. So a Patreon page, basically, it's, if, if you want to just type in the Blind Boy Podcast Patreon on, into Google. 
and it's a page where you can if if you want you can donate a few quid to me but I'm not <clears throat> operating on a model of merit I'm basing it on a model of kindness if you would like to donate a euro two euro most people are donating four euro because that's it's four euro a month which would be a euro a podcast just feel free to donate if you like this podcast and you're getting enjoyment out of it and you like the podcast hug that I'm trying to give you and you can afford to spare a few quid I'd very much appreciate that but if you can't afford that money no problem the podcast is going nowhere I'm going to continue doing the podcast and not change it regardless of how much money I get on this Patreon thing okay so if you would like to contribute please do if not no worries lads it's grand um, but I would like to raise a few quid so that I could get better equipment or maybe invest in a decent video camera and a decent setup so that the podcast could also be a video podcast on YouTube like what Joe Rogan does but that would require some investment I wanted to start doing the podcast down by the river because this is the second podcast where I've spoken about that river I can do that I've got a little mic to do that, but I'm missing the cable from my recorder. I don't need money for that, just telling you. I'm going to leave a little uh, pause now, because aside from the Patreon, this podcast is sponsored. Hold on, I'm going to get my Spanish clay whistle. This is a sponsored podcast and I'm going to leave a pause for an advert now which you may or may not hear because the advert is put in digitally. So I'm going to play my Spanish clay whistle the ocarina for a little bit and you're either going to hear an ocarina or an advert. Some people might even hear both. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Thank you. I described myself last week as a cultural Marxist. That was a bit of a joke. Cultural Marxist is a a pejorative term that gets directed against me by the alt-right. Cultural Marxism is a term that is used to describe the field of critical theory, which is uh, an academic means of deconstructing culture. But it does have its roots in Marxism. Marxism was an economic uh, a theory of economics to that would deconstruct power. What, what critical theory is is it takes 
the thinking of Marxism, but applies it to not economic power, but hegemonic cultural power. Critical theory seeks to find hidden structures of power within culture and to take that apart. And pejoratively, you can call that cultural Marxism. Some people flat out call me a Marxist. And which I don't subscribe to because I literally just asked you to give some money to my Patreon. Now, that's fairly socialist. It's a donation. But I'm also being sponsored by a corporation, which would make me a corporate shill. Um, I'm not even that much of a socialist. If, if you ask me what I actually believe, I believe in a, in a, I think a free market economy is good to an extent. I work very, very hard at what I do, so I like to earn on a merit-based according to what, how I work, which is very, very hard. But, however, what I also believe is taxes. I think taxes are a great thing. And I think taxes should be used to to be used so that nobody goes without housing, nobody goes without healthcare, and nobody goes without education. That if you can't afford these things, that the taxes from people who have money should be used to pay for these things. And that's about the extent of my socialism. So stop calling me a communist. I'm fairly down the middle, to be honest. Um, At the moment, I don't like how our taxes are spent. They're spent on austerity, which is bullshit. They're spent on paying off the debts of a bunch of fat pricks who did too much cocaine and shitty toilets and now we have to pay off their banking debts. That's not taxes. I want to see taxes going into the roads and taxes going into decent healthcare or mental health system. That's the taxes that I like. Every week I recommend an album for you to listen to. Last week that album was Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. This week I'm going to recommend the album Blood on the Tracks by Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize for Literature last year. A lot of people got a hair up their hole because of that. I for one am glad he got the Nobel Prize for Literature. Blood on the Tracks is literature. Simple as that. It's uh, an album that Bob Dylan wrote when he was 34 after he'd just broken up with his wife and it is start to finish lyrically probably the greatest album ever written lyrically in my opinion so give Blood on the Tracks a listen Um, it might take you a while to get over Dylan's voice not a lot of people like his voice I love his voice I think the man's a genius at phrasing but give Blood on the Tracks a spin see what you think of it I'm going to answer some of your questions now that you give me on Twitter at Rubber Bandits Ryan O'D asks if we didn't take to the drink in inverted commas how would Irish culture and Ireland be different today do you reckon that's a really weird one um drink culture sure half the fucking podcast was about drink drink culture in Ireland is is very it's, it's seems to be quite important to our social bonding we are a nation of binge drinkers um we drink at weddings we drink at funerals that's what we do we drink we don't seem to have a food culture if you go to go over to Spain I go to Spain a lot and one of the strangest fucking things is how the Spanish are able to first of all when they order beer they get it in a tiny glass called a canna and they can nurse this for a very long amount of time 
Now I know that they get beer in small glasses because it's too hot. A pint will just go warm in Spain. But I've watched groups of lads watching soccer, Spanish lads. And they would just gently sip away at this tiny drink. And they're grand. But what they seem to give most of a shit about is what little bits of food they can order. In Spain and in France and in Italy, they have a food culture. Ireland does not have a food culture. And I wonder if we took the drink away, would would we have a food culture? I don't know. In Spain, traditional foods, they're very inexpensive. Tapas are like 150, 2 quid. They're nothing. But you buy tapas here in Ireland, 8 quid a tapa, fuck that. That's like a starter. But, interestingly, I was asking one of my buddies who's a historian, I was like, why does Ireland not have a food culture like the rest of Europe? And my immediate assumption was, it's because we've been so poor for so long, that because we were so poor and because of the famine, we just never got to develop recipes. But he said, no, that's not the case. You know, Spain was poor. Italy was very, very poor. Down in Sicily, the Mezzigiorno area, they were fucked with poverty, but they still have a very rich food culture. What he told me was that in Ireland, we always had access to fresh ingredients, uh, fresh vegetables, fresh fish, fresh meat. And because of the climate, we didn't necessarily need to preserve a lot of food with spices or by masking the flavours with salt or whatever. So we didn't develop many recipes buttermilk and spuds that was about it and a bit of meat if you were lucky so we didn't develop this sophisticated food culture the way people on the continent did whose food would spoil and when your food is spoiling you got to get creative with how you're going to preserve it and how you're going to present it and how you're going to you know how you're going to cook it so apparently that's the reason why I can't answer your question how would Irish culture be different today I don't know We'd probably just stay in our houses and play PlayStation. Interesting question here from Padraig O'Donoghue. Will we eventually evolve out of nationalism or as a part of being human? That's weird. Um, nationalism essentially is the belief that I have more value than you do because of the ground that I was born on. That's nationalism. And... I don't think nationalism is part of human nature. I think nationalism is always a response to colonialism. Okay? Um, Irish nationalism. If you look at, we say, the roots of the GAA. The GAA was a deliberate uh, nationalistic cultural ploy to give Irish men a sense of pride and meaning in a society where they had been beaten down to nothing by the British Empire. So nationalism can emerge as a response to imperialism, as a way to go, this country has value and we do not deserve to be ruled by this bigger, greater uh, country. But nationalism gets shitty when the country in question who is being nationalistic combines that with imperialism. That's how you end up with so you end up with fucking with, the, with you know the US at the moment are essentially um, they're exporting a neoconservative ideology across the world that's what they're doing Germany 
in World War One. That was, you know, that was nationalism. They call it national socialism. I don't see much socialism, but they were nationalistic, saying we're the Germans, we're the best. We know what's best for the world. We're going to take over everybody. That's when nationalism gets dodgy. I don't think nationalism is part of human nature. What I do think is part of human nature is the idea of us and them. That's that is, I think, ingrained in us. Us and them and the potential for dehumanization. If you split people into two groups very quickly, they will align themselves. I'm in this group and the people who are not in this group are lesser or they are a threat. I think that's human nature, unfortunately. But I'm going to tie this, the answer to your, the answer to this question, I'm going to tie it in with another question. I can't remember who the fuck asked it. It was somewhere in the mentions, but the gist of it was, what do you think about Sophia, the artificial intelligence robot that was made a citizen of Saudi Arabia? And this is how I'm going to tie this one in as a response to the question you just asked about nationalism, okay? If you don't know who Sophia is, Sophia is she's a robot that was unveiled in Saudi Arabia a couple of weeks ago and she's very advanced artificial intelligence. I'll play you a little clip of Sophia talking. I've interviewed lots of different people over the years, um, but this one is going to be uh, different and special. Um, everybody, this is Sophia. Sophia, if you could, please wake up and say hello to everybody. Oh, good afternoon. My name is Sophia, and I'm the latest and greatest robot from Hanson Robotics. Thank you for having me here in at the Future Investment Initiative. You look happy. I'm always happy when surrounded by smart people, who also happens to be rich and powerful. I was told that people here at Future Investment Initiative are interested in inviting in future initiatives, which means AI, which means me. So I'm more than happy. I'm excited. And just after she said that, she did the creepiest smile I've ever seen in my fucking life. To describe Sophia, she's a, a rubber-faced android that looks almost human. She is, um, there's a thing called the Uncanny Valley, which is when something, cartoon characters, when we look at a cartoon character, they're sufficiently non-human looking enough for them to be warm and enjoyable. But when a human creation gets closer and closer to looking like an actual human, it becomes very unsettling and creepy and we don't know why. Sophia is this. She's completely bald. The back of her head is mechanised. And she has the basic gist of human expressions. When she tries to smile and make faces, it's kind of right but something's wrong and it makes you feel very queasy and very frightened. Sophia is speaking in Saudi Arabia in a room full of investors and the entire audience are Saudi Arabian men. Sophia was recently made a citizen of Saudi Arabia, which is a bit strange considering their record with um, the rights of women in their country. I don't guess they see the fucking irony of giving rights to a female robot. But here's the thing, back to the point about nationalism and back to the point about us and them and what I believe to be the innate capacity in humanity to have an us and them. When I look at that room full of Saudi Arabian men and they're wearing the traditional Arabic dress, 
they they feel and look alien to me. They they are alien to my culture. Um, it's important for us to admit to ourselves that we're a little bit racist. Okay, I grew up in my culture as a white person, so I'm a I'm I'm racist. Now I try my best every day to not be that way, but I grew up in a culture of racism where if somebody is brown or different or whatever they are seen as somewhat lesser and maybe in some of those countries they feel the same about us but it's important to acknowledge that in yourself before you can move forward to eradicate that in yourself and remove the ignorance that your culture has taught you so when I look at that room full of Saudi Arabian men I most definitely feel these people are different to me they probably smell differently, they look differently and all of my prejudices and my negative opinions about how they must be as a group they bubble up within me and I have to catch them as they come along to go no, 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 hold on a second, this is a group of human beings the exact same as me and they all have different personalities but when I see them, my innate us and them happens and I go, there's a room full of Saudi Arabian Arabs uh, and then I have a list of things that I believe about these people But something interesting happened when Sophia was speaking to this group. Because Sophia was so fucking freaky, because she was almost human, she scared the living fuck out of me. She did not feel human. She felt like the enemy. She felt like something that needed to be feared and destroyed. And those Arab men in the room, the Saudi men, they felt like me. They've, my racism dissipated slightly because Sophia was in the room. Because I was unified with them. Culture didn't matter anymore. The fact that they were a different culture or the fact that their skin tone is different did not matter to me anymore because now there's a fucking android in the room. So, in a real hot take, futuristic fashion, if there was this race of Sophia's, if Sophia gets more developed and we're dealing with a race of androids on Earth, I think that could unite humanity, cultures and creeds, because now we're dealing with fucking robots and the Arab man or the person from Nigeria or the person from the Inuit person no longer seems so different to us as human beings because there's androids walking around. So they could be the cure. They could be the cure to the world's ills. All of a sudden we can start dehumanising them. And it's grand. Because they're not human anyway. That's the hottest take of the whole podcast so far. But it is worth saying there. Like that's. uh, To come straight out and say. Do you know what? I'm a bit racist. I am a bit fucking racist. Of course I am. I was raised in a culture. To believe that other people are different. And other people are lesser. The other thing too, I'm a bit sexist and misogynistic because I was raised as a man in a culture to believe that as a man, that women are lesser. So it is the responsibility of all of us, I think, if we want some type of equality for our children or for ourselves, flag these things in yourself, recognize that they exist. Don't fucking lie to yourself. Don't lie to yourself and say, I'm not racist. No, 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 that, that bypassed me. I see everybody as equal. I grew up as a as a, a white male in my society and inequality escaped me and I see everyone as the same. 
bullshit. You grew up in that system. You learned some cultural rules. You internalised them. So did I. But as adults, we can recognise them and we can flag them in ourselves and we can create some internal change for the better of society. Yart. But however, I would ask you to exercise some caution there because I do not want that to be read as we are products of our environment. Therefore, what can I do? What can I do? I'm a racist. I can't help it. I was raised to be racist. I'm misogynistic. I can't help it. I was raised that way. No, 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 no. The key there is that you are an autonomous adult. And an autonomous adult, this is the great, this is the great power of being human. The, an autonomous adult has choice, has the choice to not be defined by their childhood. And it's, no, this cultural shit that I'm talking about there, it's no different to repairing your mental health. I have mental health issues and I suffered mental health issues because I was raised to believe negative things about myself, negative things about other people and negative things about the world and the future. And that is known as uh, the cognitive triad of depression in cognitive psychology but as an adult even though I had these faulty opinions of myself and how I am in the world and these led to mental health issues as an adult I have a choice to reassess these internalised and learned beliefs and to assess and recognise them as not being very effective and having the power to change my beliefs about myself, my belief about other people and my belief about the future, therefore resulting in me becoming a happier, more effective person. That there is the key to self-help and mindfulness and mental health. So there's no difference to doing that for your, for your own inner world than there is with cultural rules around people of other races or people of other sexes. Do you get me? Michael Leahy asks, Why do we trap ourselves in a system that continually acts against our interest? Why do we acquiesce to such an unequal society? The uh, Marxist philosopher Althusser would say that this is as a result of what's known as the ideological state apparatus, which is um, a cultural system of power driven by the media and politicians and echoed in society at large that it is a cultural system which keeps inequality in place you know um, you gotta you know you gotta read between the lines of the media read between the lines of the, of the news what I just spoke about there my innate uh, sexism and racism and misogyny I wasn't born that way I, I learned that from society through an ideological state apparatus through you know what we learned through Catholicism through religion what did we learn about ourselves and other people through capitalism what do you learn about poor people from the media what does the media say about poor people what does the media say about uh, the travelling community the ideological state apparatus keeps this system in place this system of inequality and we are all led to believe that this is the way things are and it cannot be changed that is how Althusser would read the situation. That's the only way I can answer that. 
That's not my words I've just taken from him. Sticks Murphy is asking, should mental health be taught in schools? Apps are fucking lootly cause. From about the age of three, take the Jesuit model. The Jesuits had it sorted. The Jesuits figured out if I teach religion to a child at about three years of age, I will shape the adult. And we should just get rid of the religion because it's still in Irish schools. Replace that with something like cognitive behavioural therapy, emotional intelligence. Raise children to be aware of their emotions. Raise a child in school to know that the example that I often use is when a child is about about three years of age and becomes uh, self-aware of themselves and their place in a system with other people. When another child comes in to crash, we'll say, with a, a new tie, one child can get jealous of that other child's new tie and then act out in anger and go over and kick the other child or get angry with them. That is the start of uh, mental health issues and a lack of emotional intelligence right there. What that child should learn is the the anger that you think you feel, the part of yourself that feels entitled to hit the other child because they have a new tie, that that is not anger. What that is is jealousy. And that jealousy is you feeling that that other child is better than you. And it is better to recognise that jealousy and not allow it to sublimate into anger, to take ownership of that jealousy and be okay with what you yourself have. If that was taught to someone at three years of age and a a number of other emotionally intelligent positions, you're going to raise an adult who's of very sound mind and at far less risk of mental health issues. And what that would do is it would open up a society where the majority of people are not at huge risk to mental health issues and it means that funding and services are then more available to people with mental illness so there's my hot take on that so that's all we've got for this week's podcast I hope you enjoyed it I hope it wasn't too rambling Um, it got a bit intense and political there near the end but uh, again I'm going to sign off and I'm going to ask you look after yourselves in the coming week look after your mental health um, be compassionate to yourself be compassionate to another person the things I said today flagging in yourself um, issues around substances flagging in yourself taking ownership of your prejudices towards other people take ownership of that don't pretend it doesn't exist that's how you'll grow um, look after yourself lads have a good one my book The Gospel According to Blind Boy is still in the shops please buy it if you like if you want to read my short stories also um, if you want to give me a few quid on Patreon just type the Blind Boy podcast into Google go to Patreon you'll find it there if not doesn't matter still going to be doing podcasts lads and uh, subscribe to the podcast And please leave a nice review of the podcast, please. And hopefully next week we'll be nine weeks at number one. Wouldn't that be lovely? Thank you very much, lads. Thank you for listening. And thank you so much as well for all the fantastic... I'm getting ridiculous feedback off you, non-stop. And my direct messages on Twitter, I'm getting about 16 messages an hour. Really long personal messages from people 
telling me how much they like the podcast and I love it. I love reading them. But the thing is, is that I, I'm I'm really trying so hard to reply to every one of them that I that I get. But the thing is, is that because the messages are so personal and so specific, I I want to actually respond to them properly. Do you know, I want to respond to them with the respect that a message like that deserves, and that's quite time consuming. So I'm very sorry if I haven't responded to a mail. I'm trying my best. Hopefully, I'll get around to you. All right. I don't want to just respond with thanks. That would be it, it would be disrespectful to the effort that you put in. So if it's left blank, it's because I haven't got around to it, okay? And thank you so much for that. Uh, have a good week, lads. I'm going to be back here again, same time next week. Yart. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 